We are in Judges, so if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to the third chapter, verse 31, we'll finish the third chapter in a moment and move on into chapter 4 as we are looking at the book of Judges, Sin, Servitude, and Grace. We see the sin of Israel that leads them to servitude, then God sends a judge to rescue them, and uh, the cycle begins, there's peace. And then Israel sins again, and back we go through through the same cycle. And we've already seen it, and we'll see it again today. And there are some real lessons for us uh, in, in this incredible book. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the beauty of this day and the joy of life itself. Thank you for health and strength, the fact that we were able to get up this morning and go about our daily schedule and to come here and enjoy a meal together and fellowship with one another is a blessing to us. So thank you, and I pray now that you will speak to our hearts from your word. I pray that we will learn, that we'll be challenged, convicted, directed, and all the things that the Holy Spirit does through Scripture. So bless us now in this time together, we pray in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. All right. Um, We are at chapter 3, verse 31. You should have an outline on the table in front of you and pens to assist you in note-taking. So let's look at the 31st verse. We come to our next judge, uh, although he's not called a judge in the text. In fact, he's not called much of anything. I mean, Shamgar just appears, and uh, then he's gone. He will be mentioned again in the prayer of the Song of Deborah in chapter 5, but Honestly, we just don't know a whole lot about Shamgar. The scripture does not say a whole lot about him. I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, um, we had a couple in our church, and uh, they were a military couple, and the man's first name was Shamgar. Some of you remember uh, Shamgar. And so I'm, my wife and I, they, they, uh, Shamgar's wife taught school in Colleen, and uh, she taught uh, my, where my wife was principal. And so we were at a, at a gathering of some kind. And so Sharon introduced me to them, or introduced me to his wife. She had not met his, her husband either. And so Shamgar put his hand out and said, my name is Shamgar. And so I said, oh, one of the judges in the Bible. And he looked and he said, you're the first person I've ever met who knew what my name, where my name came from. <laughs> so next thing I know, they visit the church and join. So uh, it, it pays to be a pastor and to know your judges. <laughs> we, we got a real good couple in them, that's for sure. And uh, they, by the way, those of you who knew them, they live in South Carolina, and he's uh, retired from the military. They live in South Carolina, and I think four or five children later. So uh, they're doing real well. All right, Shamgar I've called the nowhere man simply because we don't know where he came from. But let's see what the scripture does say. After Ehud, the last judge that we looked at last week, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. So obviously he's a judge. He follows Ehud who was a judge. And he comes... um, uh, he saves Israel, so obviously he is a judge. We just don't know a whole lot of information about Shamgar. Where does he come from? We don't know. And um, 
but though it's not explicitly stated, it is implied and, quite frankly, obvious that God is with him. Now, the Philistines are from the area uh, in Israel along the Mediterranean in the area that today we know as the Gaza Strip. So, obviously, from news, uh, you're familiar with uh, the Gaza Strip. And so that's the, that's the area from which the, the Philistines came. And the Philistines entered Canaan not too very long after Israel. And they came by sea, and they were iron smelters, which gave them an, an enormous technological advantage when it comes to um, warfare and, and, and the military. Uh, they lived in the area that was level, a, a plains area near the Mediterranean, and the, the kind of terrain uh, in which they chariots chariots would be most most effective, and so this is our first time to meet the Philistines. It will not be our last time. Uh, we'll see them over and over and over again, and we know that Israel and the Philistines had a cozy, congenial relationship. Not they they definitely did not. So here, here comes um, Shamgar. He, he seems to have come from nowhere, and he has a weapon called an ox goad, which would have been a long uh, stick used to prod animals, and uh, it would have been probably would have been painted, and would have been about eight to ten feet long and tipped on the end with metal, and would have been sharpened like a spear. Eight to ten feet. You better be a pretty robust man if you're going to carry an ox goad and if you're going to use it in in battle against others. And so we find that in the text it says he killed 600 Philistines. That is amazing and lets us know that certainly God was with him. Now it doesn't say he did this in one battle. Maybe he did it in two or three battles. Or maybe he did it in one battle. It doesn't matter. It's a miracle either way. Because for one man to be able to do that is is astounding. Now, we'll see him again in the next, uh, when we get to chapter 5, verse 6, if you want to turn the page and look there. In the Song of Deborah, it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. It's talking about the the horrible conditions in Israel at that time. It wasn't safe on the highways, so people would take to winding side roads to get where where they wanted to go. And it also says, in verse 7, villagers in Israel would, would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Why not? You know why? Rest of, there's a place in Scripture that tells us. It is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 19 through 22. I'm not going to take time to read it. You can jot it down. 1 Samuel 13, verses 19 through 22. When the Philistines would subdue a people they would take away all their weapons, remove them so they couldn't use them again. 
So maybe that's the first instance of the government saying, we're coming after your AK-47 and your whatever, whatever, whatever. But they came and they got the weapons, and so Israel, uh, in, in conflict with their neighbor, they don't have any weapons with which to defend themselves. So we'll get to all that uh, a little bit more later on. So Shamgar is an incredibly fierce fighter, a tough man, a strong man, but, but the thing we need to remember is that his power did not come from, from his muscles. I mean, I said he was a strong man. I, I can't even guarantee that for sure. Why would, why would it have been important? It was God's with him, and that's all he needed. The Lord was with him. So remember the things we've talked about by observation in, in Judges that we need to remember today. If God is with you, that's, that's all you need. If God's hand is against you, it doesn't matter how strong you are or how strong your armaments or your army or your navy or today your air force, it doesn't matter. If God's hand is against you, you're in trouble. And we'll observe again in a few minutes because sometimes we think about this and, and we don't like people drawing modern-day parallels. God used pagans to judge his own people over and over and over again. We think of ourselves today as God's people. As Christians, we are, but that does not equal our nation being God's people. We, we don't want to equate ourselves to Israel. That's not um, good biblical hermeneutics. However, there can be no question that God's blessed us in an extraordinary way. So sometimes we tend to think, well, because we are a Christian nation, however you want to define that, then surely God will not judge us by the hand of some of the nations that are such pagan nations. But if I'm looking for biblical defense of that view, you won't find it. What we do find is God being in control and God using pagans to judge his own people. So we better be certain that if we're going to rest in something that it's not in our own strength, but that we rest in the power of the Lord. So finishing up that parallel, I think we all know we need revival in a desperate way in our, in our own culture, in our own nation. Well, we've got more to say about that because we can't avoid it. But let's go on to chapter 4. And we're going to be introduced now to Deborah and Barak in uh, the the fourth chapter. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with the same events, one from the viewpoint of an historian and the other from the viewpoint of a poet. So when we get to chapter 5, we're going to discover that the poet is Deborah. Songwriter, poet, we think this was a song. 
chapter 5. We'll get there and find it to be fascinating. But as we start out in chapter 4, we're getting the viewpoint of the historian who has written Judges up to this point. And so we're going to start now with verse 1, and we're going to get the story in front of us. Are you ready? Here we go. After the Isra- Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Where does that take us? Back to our, our cycle. Remember the cycle drawing I gave you weeks ago? Same thing over and over again. Israel sins. God orchestrates a people to bring judgment on Israel. Israel is oppressed. They cry out. They repent. God raises up a judge to rescue them. They live in a time of peace and prosperity, and then the judge dies, and Israel sins again, and we go through the cycle over and over and over again. So here we are, finding that cycle repeated. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord, and I want you to notice this, the Lord, who's in control here? The Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, that that's kind of like a, a glass of cold water being splashed in your face to wake you up. The Lord sold his people into the hands of a pagan Canaanite king. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And they cried to the Lord for help. Picture today, instead of 900 chariots, 900 uh, Abrams tanks. Uh, Craig, is the Abrams tank still our, our best tank? Is that our... our, our Okay, so picture 900 Abrams-class tanks and what Deborah will put together or Barack will put together for an army, not not even all of them having weapons, uh, a ragtag bunch going up against the Abrams tanks. So as this story proceeds, you're going to conclude again, God's in control or Israel would never have won. Never. Um, It's dangerous to make modern application, but I'm thinking about the history of modern Israel, and I would just have to say, if God had not orchestrated, they would not exist as a nation today. There's no way. It is impossible. But that's for another day. Now, verse 4. So they they cry out to help. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading or judging Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She gets her own palm tree. I like that. 
good place to have court. She sent for Barak, son of Abinon, Abinon, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, and we'll talk about this verse in a minute, the honor will not be yours, but the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Oh, he must be talking, she must be talking about herself. We shall see. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men with, went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, some translations say father-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaninim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Here come the Abram's tanks. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. This would be called a titanic upset. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent. She covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. All right. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. We'll say that for the second time. He's dead, okay? On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Now, this is quite a chapter. So, let's look at, go as far as we can. 
The cycle in verse 1 begins again after Ehud's death. The Lord causes this according to verse 2. The Lord is the one who causes this and is using pagans to judge his own people. Jabin is the king of Canaan. His headquarters or his throne is in Hazor, which was a fortified city 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Picture the Sea of Galilee in your mind. Hazor is 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee near what is today the Israel-Lebanon border. You can go there today. It's one of the largest ancient ruins in, in modern Israel. And as you stand there, you look just right there and right in front of you is the Lebanese border and the southern cities of Lebanon, which today are controlled by Hezbollah. Now, uh, Hazor can be seen, the remains can, can be seen for miles, and it's large, it's imposing, so it was a very powerful city. And, and the secret of Jabin's strength, other than the fact that God was orchestrating all this, was based in his general Sisera, whose camp was in Harosheth Hagoim. Now, this was a good distance away at level ground on the western end of the Jezreel Valley next to Mount Carmel. Um, Picture the Jezreel Valley, Mount Carmel at one end of the Jezreel Valley, the Mediterranean in back of you, level ground for miles. And do you know the famous place that you are looking at when you're there? Book of Revelation, Armageddon. You're looking at the Valley of Megiddo and, and Armageddon. And, of course, today there's also the remains of Megiddo, the city there. It's a city of, um, uh, of run, controlled by many different countries through the years, but there are remains today. You can go there and find remains of, of uh, Solomon's control of the city, his stables, and also you can find there ancient Canaanite altars where they offered their children to the gods that did not exist. So here's the Jezreel Valley, and in that valley, level ground where chariots operate best, and that's where Sisera had his base. And he was fierce and had a strong army and, of course, all those tanks, and they were tough. They were really tough, and there's no way... Humanly speaking, that Israel can put together a ragtag army and defeat him. It can't be done humanly speaking. He has 900 chariots of iron. He seems invincible and has been terrorizing Israel for 20 years. And that's when they finally cried out and repented and said, God help us. So when they cried out for help and when they repented, then God did what God does repeatedly throughout Judges, and and he raises up Judges to lead them. So we're introduced in verse 4 to Deborah, a prophet, or I guess I should say prophetess, who was leading and judging Israel. In verse 5, she held court and decided disputes among the people. She was well-known and well-respected. She gave wise counsel. And interestingly enough, as we think about her, she was unlike the other judges of Israel in that she led from wisdom and character rather than from sheer might. 
she points prophetically to the one Isaiah calls wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and that is Jesus. And verse 6, she receives a word from God and she obeys by sending for Barak and sharing that word with him. The word Barak means lightning. means lightning. So think about that. What Barak will do is like a lightning strike against Sisera. So she commissions him. She commissions Barak, who apparently was already at least a leader of some renown among some because he's easily able to gather a gathering of men up to 10,000. And she says, literally, if you look at that, that, that translation, literally she says, Go and take your men. So did he already have an army? I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he did. But she says, take 10,000 from Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. So God through Deborah promises to deliver Sisera into Barak's hands. Now, if you're Barak, you probably have a measure of confidence. But to be told you're going to do battle with Sisera and his 900 Abrams tanks and his thousands in his army would have been, um, I mean, you'd have to be made completely of steel to not have some kind of a nervous reaction to that or some concern or some fear. That's quite a promise when you consider who he would be fighting. So for this to happen, one thing Barack knows for sure This will have to be a God thing or it won't happen. You and I read the text and we say this will have to be a God thing or it won't happen. Now, there is some measure of controversy around verses 8 and 9. And let me read them again. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, you read that and you think, okay, is Barak scared? And he doesn't want to go without Deborah? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying more along the lines of, I will do this, hey, but I want you to go with me. So which which is it? We'll look at verse 9. Her response is, certainly I will go with you. It almost sounds like she was expecting to be invited, and she has her answer ready. But then she says, because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman, which we know is not Deborah, but but turn out turns out to be Jael. Now, what what is what is verse nine saying? So Deborah went with Barak to to Kadesh. Is Barak really refusing to go unless Deborah goes, or is he inviting her to go? Because why wouldn't he? I mean, why wouldn't he want the judge of Israel to go with him with all her wisdom? So. She says, of course I'll go. Now, is verse 9 a slap on the wrist or a prophetic statement? That's that's where you get the controversy in all the commentaries. Is it a slap on the wrist because Barak was afraid to go without Deborah? Or is it really a prophetic statement because it can be translated this way, in this path that you are taking, a woman will get the honor. Not saying because you 
didn't want to do it God's way, you're not going to get the honor. Is it saying, in this path you are taking, a woman will get the honor, a prophetic statement. Now, that's the what, that's what I believe. I may be wrong, and it wouldn't be the first time. But, but that's why, why do I think that? Because when I, I look at Barak in the, the Song of Deborah in chapter 5, and then I go into the New Testament, into the Faith Hall of Fame, and lo and behold, who do we find in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11? Barak. Therefore, I'm saying Barak was a man not of cowardice, but of great courage, and that he was inviting Deborah to go, because why wouldn't you invite the judge of Israel to go with you? And her response is, in this path which you have chosen, a woman's going to get the glory, because that's what God had planned from the very beginning. Now, does that change anything? No, it, it doesn't, but I just thought that would be interesting to think about. So I don't believe he was a coward. I believe he's a man who recognizes Deborah's position and wants her to go with him for her honor and her wisdom. Now, who is this woman? When you first read that, you haven't read ahead, naturally we leap to the conclusion Deborah's the woman. But not so, as we shall see. Now, Barak is in the Faith Hall of Fame. I'll go ahead and read it to you from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, and on on it goes with, with the rest of the chapter. Now, when you think about the greatest of Israel, you, you probably would include Gideon in that number. You would not include Samson, but you would include Gideon. But then to think that Barak is mentioned in the same breath with David and Samuel, that to me says Barak was an extraordinary individual for him to be mentioned in the same breath with David and Samuel and Gideon. Now, Barak gathers his army of ragtag peasants. I mean, they didn't spend their days doing training out on the plains uh, because Philistines would have never allowed that. So this is a ragtag group of men who said, we're with you, we're ready to fight, we're ready to win this victory that God's promised. So they're not a well-trained army, probably not a well-equipped army, though obviously they had some swords because of what we read in the text. But they're going up against the power of Sisera, his well-trained army, and 900 chariots of iron. So how is this going to turn out? God has to orchestrate it, or it's not going to happen by human strength, by, by, by human thinking. So... He's ready to face them. Verse 11 tells us that Heber is allied with Jabin, so just keep that in mind as, as we go along. That's just a sentence that seems to be thrown in there, but there's a reason for it being there. When we get to verse 17, we see. So in verse 12, uh, you know, the, the, they, they told Sisera where Barak was, that he was going to Mount Tabor. They've been spied out by the Kenites, So in verse 13, Sisera and his army and his 900 chariots are on their way to Mount Tabor to destroy Barak. Little did Sisera know that the hand of God was pulling him to Mount Tabor. He believes certain victory is his. 
and with 900 tanks and his army against the ragtag infantry of Barak, untrained. Humanly speaking, you have to believe this is going to be ugly. And it was ugly, but just not the way we thought it was going to be ugly. So in verse 14, we'll have to stop. Deborah reassures Barak, this is the day. We say this is the day the Lord has made. This is, Deborah says, this is the day you're going to whip Sisera. This is the day the Lord has gone ahead of you. So next week, we're going to pick up at Mount Tabor. And we're going to talk about what happened at this very significant mountain in the history of God's people. And uh, we've already read, you know the outcome, but come back and uh, we'll talk about it in some detail, okay? I, I hope this is a blessing. It all fascinates me, just absolutely fascinates me. And the most amazing thing is to see our sovereign God in control. Watch what he's doing. It's amazing. Father, thank you. Thank you for your sovereignty, your love, your grace, your mercy. We love you and adore you. We thank you for the amazing way that you have worked in our lives and continue to work. And so we ask that you bless us this day, that we might be a blessing to others, that others might see Jesus in us. In his name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you next week.